Well, if you have a Bible, if you could turn with me to Luke chapter 22. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. There should be a few Bibles sitting on some of the pews, hopefully most of them. And uh, in a minute, it'll be on the screen as well. As you're turning there, I'll just say that I'm going to pick up this morning's sermon right where Pastor Jason left off last week. But whether you are here or not, let me just remind us all of some of the context of what's going on as we hit Luke 22 and really we're moving towards the end of the book. We're almost there. Jesus is in up upper room of a home with his disciples. And he's not now hour or days away from his death on the cross. He's actually just hours. And they're sharing a meal together. They're celebrating uh, the Passover meal. So the Passover meal was the celebration of God's mighty hand saving God's people out of the land of Egypt from their oppression and slavery there. And what Jesus does with that Passover meal is he says that now that Passover meal that we've been celebrating for so many years, now it's going to be about my death and my resurrection and my saving all of God's people from the oppression of their sins. He's going to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And after they have that meal together, he mentions, oh, by the way, one of you is going to betray me. And it's this statement about who is, we might say, the worst disciple that leads the disciples then to break into an argument about which one of them is the best disciple. If that sounds like an odd place to have a conversation about who's the best, it is. But that's what's taking place in Luke chapter 22. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 24 and then read through verse 34. And then we'll pray that the Lord would be our teacher. So Luke 22, verse 24 through 34. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings, this is Jesus, and he, he, Jesus, said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. I invite you to pray with me as we begin to study it together. Heavenly Father, so much of our lives can be lived just 
as these disciples were living it here in this room, in your presence. That is, when great spiritual truths and wonderful gospel realities are displayed before them, we're worried about our own image. Lord, this morning, even as we sang, we pray that you would rivet our attention on you and your salvation. That you're working even now among us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So most weeks, the pastor who's preaching will, at some point during that week, get with and have a meeting, whether it's just by email or text, or maybe it's a phone call, or maybe it's even in person, who's ever leading the worship service that coming Sunday. And so preaching pastor and worship pastor, we get together, we talk, and talk about the passage that's going to be preached, um, Themes that might come up in the sermon, songs that it would be helpful to sing, maybe even additional scripture passages that could be read. And so I'll say this week, as we had that little meeting, we did all of those things, but we also did something I've never done before, which was this week I said, in addition to the songs that we should sing or could sing, there's a few songs we probably shouldn't sing. And I'd never done that before, but I felt like these songs, it was especially odd for me to do it because I suggested that we shouldn't sing songs that actually we sing in other weeks, and they're good songs with good lyrics. But these songs that I was alluding to and mentioned by name were songs about, fo- about our following Jesus. And, and it's a good thing to sing about, right? We follow Jesus, let's do it better, let's sing about that. One of the songs, the chorus goes, where you go, speaking of the Lord, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Where you move, I'll move, I'll follow. The two opening verses in the other song I was thinking about go like this. When the sea is calm and all is right, when I feel your favor flood my life, even in the good, I'll follow you. The next verse begins, when the boat is tossed upon the waves, When I wonder if you'll keep me safe, even in the storms, I'll follow you. These are good songs with good lyrics that call us onward and upward as we follow Jesus Christ. Right Where where, where Jesus goes, I want us to go too. It's good to sing about that. It's just that it didn't feel right to sing about these things this morning. In the passage, Peter so confidently says, Lord, I'm going to follow you. Even into imprisonment and death. Where you go, I'll go. What did Jesus say? (laughs) No. No, you won't. So this isn't a passage that we would use to preach and, you know, launch a new vision and mission statement. It's not a passage where we're going to say, let's take that hill and storm that castle. But it is a passage To delight in all that Jesus is for us in the gospel. It is one of those passages. Now the first thing we're confronted with in this passage is our own depravity. The bad news of who we are as human beings. We see it right there in verse 24. Let me read that one more time. 
The passage begins with this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, we often, when we're preaching, we're preaching from what's called the English Standard Version of the Bible. It's one of uh, a number of, we're very blessed in the English language, have so many good versions. Um, The New International Version, another good version, translates that phrase to be regarded as great, as to be considered as great. Both are getting at the exact same idea. Perception. And that's the thing with depravity, isn't it? That's what the thing with being a human, isn't it? We tend to be less concerned with being great and more concerned with being perceived as great, being regarded as great. We don't so much want to be rich, we just want to be more rich than the next guy. We're not so worried about being handsome or beautiful, just as long as we are those things more than the other person, at least the other people we hang around. And it's into that context that Jesus puts forward this vision of servant leadership. Servant leadership means that there shouldn't be a single act of service that we're above. Now, you and I might generally have certain roles or roles that we play at home, at work, at church, it's okay to have those certain roles where we normally do certain things. But there's a great difference between having roles that we ordinarily do and having things that we're above doing. We might not ordinarily be the one who picks up trash, but we shouldn't be above doing such a thing after church or any other time. And this vision of servant leadership that Jesus is putting forward is certainly countercultural. But to simply label it countercultural would be a disservice. Because to call it counterculture would be like saying, well, it's, you know, out there in the world, you know, what Jesus has to say is countercultural. But the reality is, it's countercultural to our own hearts. It's countercultural to in here. You see, one of the things going on in this passage is it's not just that. They want to be regarded as great. It's that they don't even really know what true greatness is. That's the thing with human depravity. We can be in the presence of true greatness and still be trying to fish for compliments ourselves. When I was in high school, I was okay, uh, sometimes even good, at the triple jump. I don't even know how many of you know it. I mean, you can tell. It's called the triple jump. You jump three times. So even if you don't know what the triple jump is, you're thinking, you must jump three times. That, that's true. You jump three times. So I, I was in high school and uh, even made it to the state meet at this. And I remember back in the day, coach um, filming us. Now, this was a little more involved than before the days of smartphones, right? Uh, you couldn't just film and then text it to someone. You had to actually film, take it home, put it on a VCR. You know, a VCR, that's this box, right? And then you would put these tapes in it. They were sort of big rectangles, big heavy plastic. And you put them in there. You record it from one thing to the next. Anyway, he did that for me, gave it to me, brought it home. And he had also put on the video um, another triple jumper named Jonathan Edwards. Now, in a church service, I should say, Mentioning Jonathan Edwards often, like for many people at least, will hearken to like the great Puritan pastor in the 1700s. Uh, this is a different Jonathan Edwards, just for clarity. Um, it's a British triple jumper and uh, the greatest triple jumper who ever lived. And so we're on the same video. I actually have, so Caroline, if she's still back there, I can't see real well. Um, we're going to watch this. It's in another language, the video I found, but you'll get the point here. Two jumps. Jonathan Edwards on water 
Kesada johtaa 17-19. Edvardsin ensimmäisen loikat. Now notice where the board stops at 18. All right, so he's decided. He decided he knows it's good. Good translating for you. He's got to wait. He doesn't know how good it is. He's going to look at the scoreboard. Dramatic pause. They put it up. And he knows it's a world record. That's my translation. He's already won. They, I got one more jump on here for you. Edwards ei tyytynyt vielä tähän huipputulokseen. So, I bring the video home. I put it in the VCR. And I call my mom over and say, hey mom, I've got videos of me, me triple jumping. And uh, we watch. So like, that's pretty good. And then we watch Jonathan Edwards triple jump. And I remember, I love my mom, she still loves me, she might even still listen to the sermon. Um, her saying, yeah, it's really hard to really kind of appreciate how far you jumped having watched Jonathan Edwards there. <laughs> Which was true, actually that was a gift to me, uh, that, 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 that truth. Because Jonathan Edwards, in two jumps, he jumped three as a triple jump, jumped as far as I would jump in all three of mine. So, <laughs> like some context there. Um, those were the world record jumps, or at least at the time, which he still holds it, by the way. Anyway, that's the thing with us as humans. In the times when humility is most called for and appropriate, we want to boast of our self-sufficiency and our own greatness. Fishing for compliments. We can walk through a Smithsonian gallery of amazing sculptures. I want to pull out some Play-Doh and just like, well, look what we did. Help Einstein out with some long division. Oh, let me, let me help you there. And we can be in the presence of Jesus and worry about our own greatness. This actually happened a number of times in the Gospels. Um, and I think it happened not because it's the same conversation, just different Gospel authors put it in different parts in their Gospels. I think that it shows up in different places in the Gospels because it happened a number of times. In Mark chapter 9, uh, just read a few verses for you here. 33 and 34 of Mark chapter 9 we read, And they came to Capernaum. And when he, so they being the disciples, and then when he, um, this is Jesus, when he was in the house, he asked them, the disciples, What were you discussing on the way? He already knows. Verse 34, But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. <laughs> okay. Given the context of Mark chapter 9, I will say that is quite possibly the dumbest argument that has ever taken place in the history of the world. Here's what I mean. If we had lived Mark chapter 9 in the flow that they lived it, here's what happened prior to their argument. Jesus went up on a mountain with us, I'll say. And he draw back, draws back the curtain, so to speak, revealing he's not weak and feeble. He's glorious and strong. We call this the transfiguration passage. And the heavenly father, with a booming voice, speaks words of affirmation over his son, saying he's far greater than Moses and Elijah, who had appeared for a moment on the mountain with us. There's only Jesus left, and the father says, listen to him. And then they go down the mountain, we go down the mountain, and they encounter uh, a man who had been oppressed by a demon, and 
previously us disciples had tried to cast it out, but to no avail, and Jesus sends it away. And then, in speaking of his own sacrificial death and victorious resurrection, Jesus draws from exalted language in the book of um, Daniel chapter 7 that no one really knew what to do with because it was so exalted, and he applies it to himself. And then they get into an argument about which one of them is the greatest. (laughs) And that doesn't even take into context the calming of the storm, which happened previously, and the feeding of the 5,000, and many other things. And then you go over one chapter, Mark chapter 9, and we read of two disciples asking Jesus that when Jesus comes in all of his glory, they want to sit on his right and his left, presumably on thrones with him. Now when that happens in chapter 10, Jesus has just spoken of he's going to love us by and serve us by suffering and dying for us in our place. And it's like they can't even hear that the glory of the Messiah involves suffering. They leap right over that and just says, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. When you get there, let us sit next to you. And my impression, at least, is that their desire to sit next to Jesus on his right and on his left has very little with being close to Jesus and far more to do with being perceived as being close to Jesus. Because that's who we are as disciples. The moments when humility is so, the the only thing that's appropriate, we drift towards self-sufficiency. Bragging about our own greatness. Coming back to Luke here, Luke 22, we see that pride take place at the beginning of the passage with them arguing. We see it take place at the end as well. Jesus mentions to Peter that Satan has desired to sift him as wheat, which I'll say more about in a few minutes. But Jesus says, don't worry, Peter, because I've prayed for you. And, and it's not that you're a rock, but, but because you're standing on me, who is the rock, then you're good. I've prayed for you. But Peter, it's like, it's like he's not even really listening to the words Jesus is saying. He says, no, 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 I got this. Everyone else is going to fall away. I'll stay true, even through imprisonment, even through death. Where you go, I'll go. Even through the storm, I'll follow you. Jesus says, no, before the alarm clock goes off, you're going to deny me. And, And it's one thing for Peter in a room of friends to profess his loyalty. It's another thing, Jesus says, when the loyalty that you're professing takes you into the context where Roman soldiers are now going to become your enemies. And it's the relative soonness of Peter's denials after such confident assertions that's so crushing, isn't it? I mean, he's just professed it and he's just failed. I mean, here's what I mean. Say it like this. It's a terrible thing when in a marriage one spouse has an affair. But if a groom starts flirting with bridesmaids at the reception, like that's a whole other thing. The bad news of our depravity that we see in this passage is that when humility and trust are most required of us, we tend to freely boast in our self-sufficiency and to seek our own greatness. But this passage isn't all bad news. In fact, I'd say there's far more good news here than there is bad news, which is always the case when we're talking about Christianity. I want to talk for the rest of our sermons about Jesus. I want to give us as much as I can the gift of being in awe 
of our perfecter, the author and perfecter of our faith. Here's a few things I want to mention. Let's start with this one. The good news of Christianity is that Jesus is not above the lowest act of service. It's amazing to me. Jesus is not above the lowest act of service. Look at the middle of verse 26 and verse 27 again. Let the greatest among you become as the youngest. Youngest meaning uh, the one who has the least claim uh, to, to rights, the least accomplishments to brag about. And let the leader, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? He's saying, ordinarily, yeah, it's the person who's getting served. But he says, but I am among you as one who serves. Think about that. Walking on water, turning water to wine, giving living water to those who thirst, healing the blind, healing the deaf, healing the paralyzed, battling the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, speaking truth that penetrates to the hearts of the most hardened sinners, turning over the tables of the money changers in the temple court, unswayed by the supposed Greatness of the religious leaders. This one. This one. The Messiah. The Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. The one who, it says in the book of Revelation, who was and is and is to come. This one. The second person of the Trinity puts on a servant's towel and gets down on his hands and knees and washes the dirt between their toes. Be amazed that our Savior is not above the lowest tasks. Our Savior is one among us who serves. And not only in that meal, but in the way He absorbs our sins, goes to the cross, and endures the wrath of God for us in our place. And that's not all. The good news of Christianity is also that Jesus shares His leadership With those who do not deserve it. Look again at verse 29. It's just a very short verse. But Jesus says, I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. Some versions say, I confer on you a kingdom. As my Father has conferred one upon me. Think about that. That Jesus even has disciples, and I guess we could say co-rulers, should be amazing. There's only one thing that Jesus can do better with us. Don't get prideful about that, though. Let me tell you what it is. Through his disciples, Jesus shows the world that one of the reasons he's so great is that he allows people to take part in his kingdom when they don't deserve it. Like, that's that's our part in this. Showing the world how great Jesus is because he lets us tag along when we don't deserve to tag along. Do you ever think about your role in ministry like that? I mean, we want to be great and we want to do all sorts of things and show the world how awesome Jesus is. But you and I, just like these disciples, do show the world how awesome Jesus is. But one of the primary ways we show the world how awesome Jesus is, is by continuing to show the world that Jesus still is very patient with you and I. What a Savior. What grace. 
that he would share his leadership with those who do not deserve it. And that's not all. The good news of Christianity is that Jesus not only makes us workers and disciples in his kingdom, but he makes us his friends. In verse 30, we read that we sit with him at his table in his kingdom. Think about that. We've been having this Sunday school, actually it's during this service right now, on hospitality, which I taught last week, one of the lessons. And what what was amazing to me as I was preparing to teach is that how much of the Bible, it's less about how you and I go about hospitality well, and it's more about divine hospitality. That God is inviting us into his kingdom as his friends to sit at his table, to feed us his rich food, to feed us his best food and drink, to be his friends. It's not all. The good news of Christianity is that Jesus is stronger than our worst enemy, stronger than Satan. Look again at verse 31 and 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, excuse me, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Think about that. Slow down on this one for a minute. Jesus says that Satan demanded. That's, that's, That's a forceful request. Satan wants to sift Peter, it's actually plural, and the other disciples in the way he wanted to sift Job in the Old Testament. Let me explain that that phrase for a minute, to sift as wheat. To sift wheat was to to break it up um, and separate it so that you were separating the the edible parts from those parts that that weren't edible. So it's like Satan has this uh, metal frame with this wire mesh or metal wires across it. And, and it's like he wants to take the disciples and press them through that and rough them up. And as much as he can, he wants to shake their faith from them because what falls through is unbelievers. And he's going to take the disciples and, and, and do violence to them. I mean, some, some of you have felt like this before. We feel like you're tossed about and roughed up and every circumstance in life is conspiring against you. Maybe some of you feel like you're in one of those seasons right now. Be encouraged though. Jesus prays for your faith. And the prayers of Jesus are far stronger than the demands of Satan. One pastor pointed this out as I was studying through this, that while Satan wants to sift Peter and his faith and cause him to fail ultimately, the only thing he's able to sift is Peter's pride. He only comes out stronger. He may always have a limp, but he only comes out stronger for it in the end. Church, if you have placed your trust in Jesus, then the world and the flesh and the devil will conspire against you and your faith. But take heart, Jesus has overcome them all. In one letter to a New Testament church, the Apostle Paul writes that not only did Jesus in his death on the cross cancel the record, the, the 
the, the language is kind of uh, wordy, but he, he says he's canceling the debt of our sin. Not only is he doing that, but Paul writes to the, in Colossians chapter 2 that he is, through his death and resurrection, he has disarmed the rulers, the evil rulers, and put them to open shame. We read in John chapter 10 that Jesus said he's the great shepherd and he will protect all of his sheep and there is no one who can snatch them out of his strong hand. Be encouraged, church. The prayers of Jesus are stronger than the demands of Satan. If you are in Jesus' hands, you are unsiftable. But that's not all. Let me close with one more. The good news of Christianity is that Jesus calls us to a greatness that's not exhausting. Let's explain what I mean by that. There, there's a service to Jesus Christ that, 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 that takes energy and it takes work and, 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 it, and it, there's a hardness and a difficulty to it. But it's not exhausting in the same way the greatness of the world is exhausting. Here's what I mean. It might not be as obvious at first. But I think it's certainly here in this passage. Think about the beginning of the passage. We read that, quote, a dispute also arose among them. You ever wonder how that happened? Like, how exactly did that, you know, argument begin? Right? Did someone just kind of look at the other person and kind of raise an eyebrow and someone scoots in a little, you know, puffs their chest out a little bit more. Maybe someone got up to use the restroom and then everybody else kind of scoots up and takes his spot and now he's further from the head of the table. Like, I don't know how it happened. But I sort of know how it happened in another sense. I think it happened, however it actually happened, like the mechanics of how the argument started. I think it happened because this desire for greatness was never very far from their mind. They were constantly busy with the exhausting task of image management. You've probably heard of the game Musical Chairs. Probably played it. Most of us have, I'm sure. Right? So say there's 12 of us playing musical chairs. There's 11, only 11 chairs. The music starts. We march around, right? Uh, and so you kind of keep one eye on the chair. And then you kind of keep the other eye on your, your competitors. Like, who's the weakest? Who can I most easily push out of the way when the music stops? And the music stops and we throw our bottoms in the closest chair and shove someone out of the way. Uh, and then, you know, it begins again and there's 11 of us and, and only 10. Someone was the slowest. And, and it goes on and on until we find out who is the greatest. And it's a game. It's fun, I guess. It's, you know, people laugh. Now, if you play with all high school dudes, it's possible a fight might break out, right? But generally speaking, it's just a game. It has a beginning. It has an end. But when you live your life like one constant game of musical chairs, it, then it's not a game. And it never ends. And it's exhausting. At work, you keep one eye on your project and you keep one eye on your coworkers to see who's going to get the promotion. At school, you keep one eye on your, your studies, but you keep one eye on your competitors, I mean classmates. At the gym, you keep one eye on the weights or the treadmill and one eye on everyone else working out. Make sure, you know, how big a weight did they pick up? You know, 
You keep one eye on the bathroom scale. And you keep one eye on the, you know, the ladies you hang out with. You come to church, but you have to gossip. You have children, but you need them to be the perfect children. The Apostle Paul writes in one of his letters that when we measure ourselves by ourselves, we're not wise. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. And not only is it not wise, it's also exhausting. And it's not the way it's supposed to be. Jesus says, but not so among you is the language in the passage. The good news of Christianity is that Jesus has the solution to our heart problem. The solution for our depravity. The solution to our exhausting lust for worldly greatness. Luke chapter 22 might not be a passage to preach about how great we are about following Jesus. But it is a passage to delight in the beauty of the gospel. To delight in the beauty that Jesus is among us as one who serves. To delight in the beauty that he really sets us free. Free from the exhausting task of image management. And constant concern whether we've measured up. Because in the gospel we realize none of us have and we all have in Christ. May we become those who are more and more free to serve and be the kind of great, to to pursue the kind of greatness. Not that the world has in mind, but God has in mind. Would you join me in prayer as we Prepare to sing one more song as we close. Heavenly Father, I could say I pray for us, um, and that would be true because I'm also praying for myself. It's so easy at home or at work or at church to try and run hard after you and do some things that are helpful and good. And the second we start doing them, I start doing them, then we're looking over our shoulder to make sure uh, that at least what we're doing is as good as, if not better than what others are doing. And it's wrong and it's ugly. And so we pray for your forgiveness. And Lord, we pray that you would rivet our attention on the joy that we have in the gospel. It is, as one passage says, for freedom that you have set us free. We pray these things in your awesome name.